Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist. I have interest in everything healthcare, delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and healthcare policy. Today, we are going to talk about caring for patients with cancer in low middle income countries. We live in the United States and we oftentimes don't have appreciation into what happens in countries outside of the United States. I was born in Syria and I came to the US 30 years ago. In Syria, we did not have access to all of the innovative therapies that the US had back then and we don't have these today. And oftentimes we need to make decisions and treatment to patients in that country, despite the fact that we don't have access to the best treatments in the world. There's nothing we could do about it. We have to help patients despite the lack of access to everything. Even in the United States, there's significant disparities in care because of access. So one thing is to be able to know the right diagnosis, but if you don't have access to the treatment that treats that disease, then still the outcome is not going to be good. But I wanted to invite two faculty members, two physicians, one from India and one from Brazil, to talk about how they navigate all of these issues. How do they take care of patients with cancer that they see every day in these two countries that are classified as low middle income countries. There is no question that within Brazil and within India, there are segments of the population that has access to everything they want. If you have enough money, you'll be able to pay for the treatment that you actually want. But for the majority of patients, that access is rather limited. And I wanted to learn more about how they take care of patients with cancer despite these limited resources from the screening for cancer to the diagnosis of cancer to the treatment of cancer, how they navigate clinical trials and all of the items pertaining to that. This is really important and I have not covered that topic previously to that extent and nobody is better to highlight this than physicians, oncologists, researchers who are practicing exactly there where it is very, very difficult to understand. It might be very difficult for us to understand. So I'm very honored to have Dr. Nikita Mira from India and Dr. Guilherme Perini from Brazil join me on Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Now, don't forget to watch all of these episodes on my YouTube channel, Chadi Naban and Healthcare Unfiltered. Don't forget to subscribe to my podcast, rate it, refer friends or colleagues, and please write a brief review. By writing more reviews on the podcast, you are able to help me make it more noticeable to folks who are uh, not seeing it. Uh, I really appreciate your support. You can, of course, if you're a loyal listener, you got to direct message me and ask for the famous Healthcare Unfiltered t-shirt. And don't forget to check out my website, shadinabhan.com. Without further ado, Drs. Nikita Mera and Guilherme Perini, exclusively or Healthcare Unfiltered, discussing oncology care in low-middle-income countries. I have two amazing guests, uh, and we'll start by introductions. Nikita, why don't you get us started? Hi, Shadi. Thank you. Um, thank you for the warm uh, welcome to your show. Uh, so I'm Nikita Mehra. Uh, I am a practicing medical oncologist. I completed my training in medical oncology in 2017. And uh, I've been serving as a faculty member um, at the Adyar Cancer Institute, which is a regional cancer center in, in South India. It is in a place called uh, Chennai. And uh, I am pursuing my career as a clinician scientist. So my clinical work uh, involves uh, the management of uh, adult hematological uh, cancers with, uh, with a focus on plasma cell disorders, especially multiple myeloma. And uh, I also manage adult soft and uh, bone and soft tissue sarcomas. Um, additionally, I am pursuing a PhD in molecular oncology. So I essentially uh, spend 50% um, of my academic time in the lab, uh, where I am uh, working on a project um, which is essentially on uh, epigenetics in uh, multiple myeloma and its precursor states. 
Great, thank you very much, Nikita. Nikita, um, the just uh, just to understand, so um, currently in your faculty position, do you see all cancers, or you just specifically see only sarcoma and plasma cell dyscrasias? So, uh, so that. There is an overlap uh, at times, but I'm mostly focused on adult hematology and uh, uh, sarcomas. Uh, we've been able to expand our uh, team over the years, and we've slowly moved towards multidisciplinary care. So we try and focus on um, our areas uh, of uh, interest. But of course, if uh, if there is a colleague who's, who's uh, not going to be around and wants me to cover for them, I'm more than... Uh, I mean, I would uh, help in the area, but yes, mostly focused on uh, all of my focuses on these areas. Great. And from South America in Brazil, Guilherme? Uh, hi, everyone. Thank you, Shadi, for having me in your podcast. Um, my name is Guilherme Perini. I'm a hematologist in Sao Paulo, Brazil, uh, where I work uh, both in private uh, hospital, but also in the public hospital. I have a public lymphoma clinic my main focus is on lymphomas, and I try to navigate all the scenarios that I have here in Sao Paulo. I'll say, I, have, I like to say that in Brazil, we have different Brazils inside of Brazil. So there's a lot of differences in, in how we approach patients, and I would love to discuss that with you. That's great. And it's very difficult to have somebody from Brazil and not talk soccer. So I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Um, what do you, who do you think you're going to win the World Cup, uh, Guilherme? Well, I think France is still strong. I don't think Brazil stands a chance. Uh, I mean, we have to, we're, we're always, you know, trying to get there, but I don't think we're going to have a lot of success this year. Not really you know, positive about that. I think Dr. And what about you? Uh, Dr. Alan Skarbnik probably is having a heart attack right now if he's listening to this. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think France is very, very strong. I don't like their, um, their style. I feel they're very aggressive. Uh, they remind me of Italy in the 80s where they were very focused on defense. I think they're very physical. Um, I, I don't think Brazil is very strong, but, you know, I've learned that sometimes in the World Cup, you don't have to be the very strong one. Sometimes luck is usually what will, will, will get you. All right. So we're going to talk about oncology care in low middle income country. Nikita, when we say low middle income countries, do you have like, what do we do? We know what we mean by that. Um, how do we define these countries? So, um, so yes, India is a low middle income uh, country. Uh, now, um, of course, there are differences in uh, access across the country. Um, you, you do have uh, some states where the access, there is a lot of, uh, there is a lot of heterogeneity, a lot of variation within the uh, country. And essentially for, uh, uh, for uh, cancer, we're actually divided into six zones. Um, now, uh, uh, Chennai, as I mentioned, comes falls under the south zone. So there are some zones where uh, access to cancer diagnostics and treatment are possibly a lot more. Now, having said that, um, India is a country where uh, private um, more patients are uh, uh, get uh, health. I'm sorry. I mean, I think I think what's going. I think what, what what I'm learning from what you're saying, Nikita, is that the that the actual GDP for the country as a whole positions it in a low middle income country. Uh, and then within that country, there are obviously variations. Some people may not even qualify for this, which we, we see that in every country. I mean, where I came from, if you can pay for your whatever, you're going to get what you can actually get. Guilherme, is that the same? Like Brazil is based on the GDP falls under this? Exactly. This, the same thing happens in Brazil. So actually, it happens in the same city. So I live in Sao Paulo. It's a big city. And in my, in my private practice, I work in a very upscale hospital that we have everything. We have uh, PET CTs. We have molecular biologies. We, got, we have, uh, we're starting our CAR-T program in, in our hospital, our in-house uh, CAR-T uh, program. But if I maybe get my car and drive, 30 minutes away from here, where I have my public uh, lymphoma uh, clinic, 
the things are different, you know, uh, access to drugs are different, access to transplant is different. Uh, and if you, I drive maybe two hours from here, things will be completely different. In Brazil, we have uh, a very uh, developed south and southeast. Uh, but if you go up to north where you have the Amazonia and the, the health uh, system for cancer is, is you know, it's, it's starting to get more organized. So we have this difference inside. I actually come from uh, a place a little bit uh, in the center of Brazil, more to the north, and it's completely different from Sao Paulo. So it, it's, it's a lot of different uh, scenarios inside the same country. And I've been working with uh, our, our colleagues from South uh, America. And you, even, you know, this, this uh, category of low and middle income, there's a lot of difference between practice. So we have uh, people from Cuba, people from Guatemala, and, you know, access is completely different in, this, in these countries. You know, frankly, even here in the U.S., let's not fool each other, right? I mean, in the U.S., we know that there are variation in cancer care, uh, and uh, certainly you could imagine that there are certain parts of the United States that if they were a country, they would actually be low middle income countries. So I think there is no question that um, access the, to care varies in each country. Uh, but at least to Nikita's point, you know, based on the you know, the World Bank, they're saying, well, these are the low middle income countries based on the GDP, probably based on the wealth, based, maybe based on the average income of a patient or of a person. Um, you know, I should have researched that a little bit before, but uh, I think that's, that, that is fair. And that obviously affects the way uh, we do medical care. Um, you know, Guilherme, you mentioned is very interesting. In your private hospital, everything is available 30 minutes away it's not available. And probably the same with Nikita, what she's alluding to certain areas, you know, you get what you want, other areas don't. But we, we're gonna talk probably in general. So, so Nikita, uh, let's start by screening for cancer before we get into diagnosis and then treatment. When it comes to screening right now, and I know you're doing adult hematology, so you may not always have a good, um, grasp, let's say, on screening for colorectal or screening for breast or, or lung cancer. But is the sense that um, India uh, is doing screening programs for patients with cancer? Are screening programs available to all patients, all people? We don't know if they're patients. Screening is in healthy people. Um, how, tell, tell us about screening in India. So again, uh, uh, as I mentioned about India, we're obviously urban and rural, and the rural occupancy of India is actually a lot higher. The representation is almost 80% and 20% is urban. So of course, you have more access in, uh, uh, in urban India. Now, as far as cancer screening programs go, uh, we do have uh, we do have a significant number of programs that are going on that are government sponsored. There's a lot of uh, non-governmental organization uh, sponsorship into cancer screening programs. Uh, so um, uh, our institute, um, uh, Adyar Cancer Institute, actually runs a very large uh, uh, cancer registry. So it's called Tamil Nadu Cancer Registry Project, and it covers a certain uh, number of uh, areas in rural Tamil Nadu also. Uh, but you do have access to um, uh, uh, cancer screening, uh, free cancer screening programs. Again, it really depends on uh, the access is definitely going to be a lot uh, lesser in areas that are more uh, uh, inaccessible. Now, the other thing that I must point out about India is um, that cancer registries, now we come under the National Cancer Registry Program and they've been doing brilliant work. Having said that, not all the states across the country uh, uh, have made cancers notifiable. So for example, uh, the state that I come from, Tamil Nadu, was the first state that made cancer a notifiable disease. So by law, if a patient is diagnosed with cancer, it has to be notified to the registry. So the numbers may appear larger in some states when compared to the rest, but that's really because in some states it's not notifiable. Interesting. That is actually very interesting. And probably some states, they don't enforce the screening program, maybe. But, but let's, so a woman in India, 50-year-old woman in India, 
she can get a mammogram uh, free. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, and um, colonoscopy and so on. These are available in terms of screening. There are government-sponsored programs and there are private programs, but it's available. And uh, and the guidelines that you have for screening are different than the what we have guidelines in the U.S. or the same. So I have spent about two or three months in the U.S. and I do have a, a minimal understanding of how things go on there. Over here, it is not, uh, you know, you don't get calls from your insurance companies, whether it's private. Now, we also have a, a significant, uh, uh, excellent coverage in terms of uh, 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 government insurance uh, schemes across the country. And uh, uh, they are trying to uh, include or, or increase the reach to as many people uh, in, the, in the country. But having said that, the cost that goes into... Uh, I mean, these are packages that are there for cancer treatment. Uh, I don't think we have a separate cost for cancer diagnostics. And even if, like I said about a private insurance, if I do have a private uh, uh, insurance policy, I'm not going to get phone calls from the insurance company reminding me that this, you know, you have your uh, yearly or five-yearly uh, annual check or your five-yearly uh, check. That does not happen. So it is kind of, it's it's not it's not very cohesive, but I, I like the idea that you have these registries. Really, very interesting, because it's you more patient. It's yeah. more a, a person. If I hear what you're saying, I think you're talking about it's it's very it's patient driven. It's patient driven. I mean, the patient has yes. to drive this. You're not gonna. Frankly, it's the same here. Sometimes insurance companies call. Sometimes they don't. But I I see what you're saying. It's. It's a patient-driven screening program where if the patient doesn't do it, nobody's going to call them and say do it. But the physicians could enforce that as well, right? They can. Of course, they can. Uh, they do it. Yeah. Uh, but again, I mean, the population, 1.4 billion. Now, in terms of, of course, mammograph, um, a mammogram is available for free. Uh, one can access it in government centers. But is it available across the country? And the answer, the simple answer is no. Are there trained uh, radiologists in every single center, especially in uh, rural centers? In rural centers, you may not even have access to a mammogram. So essentially, it is free, but they're going to have to travel very long distances and how many are going to really be able to do it, which is why you have, you have all these programs where uh, everyone is reaching out or even from our center when we have screening programs, we're not essentially telling them to come uh, to a particular place for screening. We reach out to them. And in that, in that way, you're probably able to access uh, or patients have more, people have more access to uh, these screening facilities. That's great insight. Uh, Guilherme, what's, uh, what's the, you know, to the extent that you know, uh, what's the extent of screening programs uh, in Brazil? And are they like, available? I mean, I think it's really more, I always believe that wherever country you're in, if you have the money, you're going to pay for it and you'll get it. I think we know that even in the US. But my question is for the general population, uh, is, it, is it screening? Are there guidelines? Um, what's your sense of what's going on there? Well, uh, let's start with the, the one thing. In Brazil, about 20% of people have uh, a private insurance, so they can you know, have access to a clinician and screening and everything. The other 80% uh, of people relies on our public system. Uh, and our public system is, is a very good one, uh, but again, the problem is the number of people that we have. So sometimes you can, you know, you can have access to a mammogram, but it would take you two years to be called to do a mammogram. And that, of course, two, impacts. Two, hold on, two years? Yeah, probably for some people, we have colonoscopy, I would say even more. So we don't have, you know, a, a really strong colonoscopy program for uh, uh, colon cancer. Uh, that actually impacts how we see our patients. For example, cervical cancer is the third most common cancer in women in Brazil. Uh, and it shouldn't be. I mean, it, you, you can, if you have uh, screening for that, uh, you can avoid this high number of patients. And it's even in, in as I said, uh, in Sao Paulo, we see difference. For example, uh, we have this public 
clinic and the private clinic. And I talked with my colleagues from uh, oncology, the number of, of cancers that present with advanced disease in the public clinics are way higher than in the private ones because we don't have, you know, uh, fast diagnosis, we don't have the screening. So it, 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 we have that, but due to the high number of patients and high number of population, it usually takes more than it should. So it, you have maybe a colonoscopy every five or six, seven years because you don't have you know, all, the, all the screening uh, possibilities here. And you know, that, that's actually an important point you allude to, and maybe it's the same in India. I mean, screening obviously is not a medical emergency. It's in healthy people who have no symptoms. So I could imagine even in India, and correct me, Nikita, if, if I'm wrong, I mean, even in India, you mentioned the distance that people have to travel to get to certain centers. But I presume that there's probably also a wait time. If the doctor recommends a mammogram, I don't know, does it happen? Can it happen next week? Or they may have to wait several months to get that done. I think if they're willing to travel to uh, the particular center, it's not going to take very long. Uh, we do have uh, some hospitals like Tata. Tata is now developing centers uh, in, in many parts uh, of the country. So I think it's all about them being able to actually come to the center. The, the access to screening programs in their home, uh, even, even, uh, even the screening programs from our uh, institute, for example, our, our reach is, is, is not that wide. It right. is a good number. It's a significant number. But um, again, if they cannot uh, travel to these centers, it's going to take a very, very long time. If they can, it's not going to take right. um, very long but you know, you you mentioned the 1.4 billion population. I could imagine there are not enough centers to for everybody. So I could imagine this. Okay, well, let's move from screening to diagnosis. Um, obviously, the diagnosis of cancer is more than just doing CAT scans, uh, and even more than just doing a biopsy, because you know there are certain nuances right now today. <laughs> in terms of uh, molecular profiling, and, and Nikita is doing a PhD in, in, in molecular uh, biology. So, Guilherme, let's start with you. When it comes to diagnosing cancer, um, these fancy methodologies that we do here, how available are they? And frankly, you are specializing in lymphoma where there's like 60 types of them where you need some of this, but let's not, this is not about lymphoma, just in general. Yeah. Well, it's usually not available for maybe 80, 90% of patients. If the patient is lucky to go to a, you know, a really specialized center, you probably have, you know, access to fish or uh, karyotyping. But for most patients treated, uh, we don't have a lot. In hematology, we don't have fish for uh, probably not any disease. Uh, most of the molecular testings are not available. Uh, we rely mostly on biopsy and immunohistochemistry. Uh, so I don't have, for example, for myeloma, we're, we're actually just starting to get some people to get fish in the public system. Uh, for lymphomas, we don't have any of that. CLL, we don't have uh, these tests unless you are in a, a specialized center. So it mainly relies on biopsies and immunohistochemistry for most of the patients. So when you have a CLL patient, let's take that as an example, you're unable to tell if the patient has 17P deletion or not? Yes. So in Brazil, uh, some of, you know, the, the pharma gives you like a voucher so you can have this information. Uh, but unless you do like through these programs, you don't have that. You, you can okay. just... You just treat them, you know, blindly regarding uh, molecular testing. How about uh, when you do staging? Do you are you able to do PET scans on everybody? Uh, is that available? And and or you have to wait. I mean, sometimes you may have it available, and they will say, "Well, you got to wait two months," and you you can't wait if you have Burkitt's or large cell lymphoma. That's what usually happens. So PET uh, in our public system is it's it's approved for lymphomas, right? But for most, most of the time, a PET CT can take up to two or three months. So 
uh, not in my public system. I'm I'm lucky because I have a partnership with my private hospital, so I can have access to to PET in one or two weeks. But for most patients, they probably won't have the initial uh, staging PET because it would take so much. Interim PET usually you have to ask for this PET at the time of diagnosis, so it take two or three months, and you can have an interim PET. And end, end of treatment path, you probably do it two or three months after a uh, patient has uh, uh, finished the treatment because, you know, the, the delay in getting these tests done. And that is, you're talking the public system, but you're not public system, in the yes. private system. In so, the private, you can do it in one week or two. So the private system is what? This is like analogous to the U.S. as private insurance? like Blue Cross yes. Blue Shield and Cigna and United. And then the other one is like the county county system. Yeah, so the, the private, we have uh, different, you know, uh, private uh, insurances. You pay uh, out of pocket and then you, you have access. So most of our population cannot afford a, a private insurance. So we have this national uh, system, health system and it, it kind of, it has a, an hierarchy that you have some some things are uh, from the city, some are from the states, some some are from the country. It's kind of messy sometimes to see which one is responsible for that. But the thing is, most of patients won't be able to get all these tests at time, uh, or not even never because they are not available. So so just to go back, so when you look at the population in Brazil. What's the percent that have private insurance versus the percent that they don't? Well, before uh, the pandemic and all the crisis that follows, it would be about 18 to 20%. I believe now we'll be at around 12, 15% of patients with private insurance. So almost 85% of the patients, of the people in Brazil have to rely on the public system that you mentioned. Exactly. exactly. So that's really the majority, uh, the, the yes. vast majority. Uh, so yeah. all of this applies to them. Yes, what unfortunately, you know. yes. Um, how about, uh, so that's for PET. CAT scans and MRIs are easier done? Uh, CAT scans are, are easier. MRIs will take a, lo a long time because it's a unified you know, waiting list. So if you have a, an MRI for headaches, it, it's the same waiting list for an uh, MRI for bone disease uh, and even you know for example myeloma we only do uh, bone assessment by x-rays we, we don't have you know pets or mris and so it's so when you have to take care of patients you really have to you know i mean that's really all you have it's not like you, you there's nothing you could do you still have to do your best and treat patients with the with the little information you get exactly exactly Nikita, in India, when it comes to diagnosis and staging, um, you know, I mean, goodness, you're in myeloma field, which is becoming very complicated in terms of how much information to get. How available are these? And again, I don't want to talk about the ultra-rich people who can get anything. I mean, we, we all know this. It happens everywhere. I'm just talking for the average patient. Uh, take us through the journey and how easy it is to get these tests and and do you have these tests on everybody or you just have to operate based on incomplete information? So one is with multiple myeloma, the presentation is heterogeneous. Uh, patients have gone to uh, several specialists before ending up uh, at your uh, cancer center. Uh, so they've obviously spent a lot of money. They've ex exhausted a lot of the funds they have. Now, uh, when I mentioned uh, about these uh, government-sponsored uh, uh, insurance schemes, uh, we have a robust uh, state uh, health insurance scheme, which is now collaborating, which has collaborated uh, uh, with the center. But, you know, like I previously mentioned, there's no cost for cancer diagnostics. So this is, everything is paid out of pocket. Uh, so the patient is paying for a fish, uh, for multiple myeloma uh, over and above uh, bone marrow studies and say uh, you get a PET scan or even a skeletal survey, which is X-ray assessment of all the bones and a serum protein electrophoresis. These might, might not be very expensive, but beyond this, a serum-free light chain and immunofixation electrophoresis, uh, a PET scan, a fish, 
these are very expensive uh, for the patient. Even if you subsidize the cost, uh, the issue I find with, uh, with an investigation like immunofixation electrophoresis or the serum-free light chain is there is a cost um, uh, that is associated with purchasing the kit itself. Uh, so it's very, very difficult to subsidize or to, to bring down the cost to lower than the kit because every hospital is then going to run at massive losses. Uh, so honestly, it's very difficult because the patient says, I've spent 2000 rupees uh, to travel to come and see you. You're telling me to now pay three, 4000 rupees just for the immunofixation electrophoresis. And it feels a bit unfair. So, you know, it's really okay if we're not doing all these tests, we establish uh, uh, the diagnosis, uh, the staging, we're okay with just the ISS where you don't have information on uh, cytogenetics. And that's really one of the reasons why uh, I've even chose, chosen to do uh, 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 some research in the area. You know, if you get funding, then you can actually do some of these investigations uh, for the project like your funds are allocated for cytogenetic assessment. So the patient thankfully gets it uh, done for uh, free. Uh, so essentially, uh, you know, it might sound very naive, but uh, uh, one of the reasons to really pursue uh, re research or, or a PhD is to, to really look for other ways in which you can help patients um, uh, access more number of investigations without... Uh, uh, without pushing them uh, into absolute in, in extreme difficulty. And again, at uh, uh, follow-ups, you don't have uh, an amount that is allocated from the government health schemes towards these diagnostics. So again, they're all out of pocket. So really, if the patient has a light chain myeloma and the patient is, is doing well, uh, clinically, the patient's doing fine, um, you can't really push them to do a serum-free light chain or, it, or an immunofixation electrophoresis. You just have to go by uh, 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 by other parameters it's and amazing. not by. It's amazing. I think for everybody who is listening, really, um, to me, I'm fascinated by how how much is being done in other countries uh, and how you're able to help patients with the little information sometimes you have. I mean, uh, it's humanity. Yeah. Can I tell you one thing that's going to put perspective? I, I'm really interested in, you know, and I was really happy to talk to you about that because my understanding in social media is that most of people don't know what happens in other countries. So it's really good that you're doing this. And I do a voluntary work in Mozambique, uh, in Africa, uh, with the people from MD Anderson. I was trained at MD Anderson, and when MD Anderson was starting this program, uh, they they went back for people who speak Portuguese because Mozambique Portuguese is the language, and when I arrived there, I, you know we're always complaining of what we don't have. But when I arrived there, I see totally different scenarios. So they don't have flow cytometry, they don't have uh, immunohistochemistry for everybody. So I think when when we talk about you know uh, oncology, I think there's a lot of countries that have been neglected. Uh, we are lucky to be in India and in Brazil that would be, you know, in the up uh, part of the low and middle income countries, but there are really countries that are struggling a lot with cancer and we're not talking about them. So can you imagine uh, a country where the first Glivac was, uh, was given to a patient maybe four years ago? So that's what we found in, in, in Mozambique when we arrived that we had to go through Max Foundation I, know, I don't know if you heard about Max Foundation. They are a foundation that, you know, gives uh, treatment for patients with uh, CML. So we have to go through them to get donations so people could get Livac in Mozambique. That happened maybe 2018 or 2017. 100% uh, of, uh, of leukemias don't have uh, uh, karyotyping. Uh, so there's a lot of things going on in the world that we need to know to address and to talk more so we can bring these things to light, you know, uh, and, and help these people. So MD Anderson is now doing a fantastic uh, work on screening in cervical cancer in Mozambique. Cervical cancer was the most common cancer in Mozambique. Now they're training people and, you know, doing programs to go there and, you know, trying to make uh, uh, diagnosis in early stage disease. 
Mozambique didn't have, the, there is no PET CT in Mozambique. The radiotherapy started maybe five years ago. They didn't have radiotherapy in the whole country. So we need to bring these things to light, you know, so we can develop programs and help help other countries. So global oncology, you know, care can be more, you know, level. So everybody get at least, you know, the minimum. This is amazing. And um, if you have not written about your experience in Mozambique, uh, I would encourage you to do that. Uh, I think um, I was not aware of anything that you mentioned. Um, I, I do think puts things in perspective. And frankly, for you, even being at MD Anderson at some point, you're pretty spoiled, let's face it, right? I mean, everything is at the tip of your fingers. So even going to Brazil from MD Anderson is a huge change uh, because uh, even from MD Anderson perspective within the US is also way different um, access to things. But I wanna move to treatment. And um, again, obviously there are differences between Brazil and India and also maybe uh, you're already alluding to this, Guilherme, about Mozambique, so maybe you can give us some perspective on that um, in terms of therapy. So how available is our current treatments, Nikita, for you in India? I mean, I don't know, use myeloma as an example. It doesn't matter to me, but if you're comfortable with myeloma, use myeloma. I mean, can you get everything? Can you get daratumumab? Can you get pamolamide? Can you get, can, tell us, what can you get? And again, please exclude the folks who can pay millions of dollars and get what they want because that happens everywhere. I'm talking to the general uh, patient who has cancer. How accessible and available the current therapies that we have in the United States of America to patients in India? So if I have to use myeloma as an example, uh, the first line, which is bortezomib, uh, lenalidomide, and dexmethasone, or a cybody, or a bortezomib, thalidomide, dexmethasone, uh, is, is uh, fairly well accessible in India, thanks to the availability of generics. Uh, so we have uh, excellent generics and, and uh, uh, availability of these drugs. Now, if a patient receives treatment under some of these government-sponsored schemes, they essentially uh, receive these drugs uh, for free. Um, again, uh, an autologous stem cell transplant in multiple myeloma, it really depends on how many centers are offering it under these uh, and offering uh, 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 transplants under these uh, uh, the government-sponsored uh, insurance schemes. Um, again, if I can talk about my state, if any patient is under, under the Tamil Nadu, we call it the CMCHIs, they can get a transplant for free, an autologous stem cell transplant. But can I say this for uh, the, the rest of the country? No. There are pockets of, of uh, a higher availability of, of uh, things like transplant, uh, even drugs, right? You need oncologists, you need transplant uh, specialists. But uh, in terms of, in terms of, because of uh, the generics, you have these drugs available. Now, one very interesting point is pomlidomide. Pomlidomide uh, generics are widely available in the country, and we actually get pomlidomide under our state uh, uh, insurance scheme for free for uh, patients. Uh, they they can come every month, uh, take their drugs, and uh, go back. They have to come once a month for their prescription uh, refill. Um, what about the newer drugs? Carfilzomib is uh, generics are again available in carfilzomib, um, and and but the cost is 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 not uh, a lot of the patients cannot afford the cost of these generics also, and again the amount goes uh, beyond the insure the state uh, health insurance uh, uh, scheme amount that they allocate on a monthly basis. So carfilzomib may not be possible in some of these schemes. Daratumumab becomes very, very expensive. So you have less than, if you're talking about patients who uh, do not have adequate access or uh, cannot afford treatment or diagnosis, then none of them can receive daratumumab. The issue really is with all the other newer drugs, right? I mean, we don't have... Uh, um, the newer drugs, older drugs, of course, we have everything, the oral melflan, benamustine, et cetera. But it's becoming very difficult now to access uh, all the newer drugs. 
uh, unless we have uh, generics. And again, the cost needs to substantially come down. Uh, these insurance, the government-sponsored insurance schemes should be able to, uh, uh, to really fund these uh, drugs. A lot of the times, it's not going to be possible. So sometimes we rely on... Uh, we're very happy to be a part of clinical trials because then the drug becomes, uh, of course, you're looking at the methodology and you're taking it through uh, your ethics committee, et cetera. Um, but, but you're really hoping that your patients have access to drugs through these clinical trials. So we did have Selinexor, for example, the company uh, also uh, opened up their clinical trials for lymphoma and myeloma in India. Of course, there is a concern about uh, inferior control arms, etc. But you know, when you don't, when you are in a country with such limited availability, the control arms really, you know, they you're just hoping your patients can access uh, these uh, uh, newer uh, drugs. We feel uh, the, the divide is increasing between uh, high-income countries and low-middle-income countries now. Uh, like uh, my, my mentor used to tell me that 10 years ago, if you attended ASH, you could really practice everything that you learned over there in your country. But if you go today, there's, there's so little you're going to be able to bring back. CAR-T, newer, all these newer uh, monoclonal antibodies or bispecifics, et cetera. It's going to take forever to be able to uh, increase access uh, in the country. Thank you, Nikita. That's very, very helpful. Guilherme, take us through uh, the same question, but more from the Brazilian and Southern America perspective. Well, in Brazil, uh, unfortunately, we don't have um, access to, to a lot of drugs that Nikita said. We don't have, for example, for myeloma in the public system, uh, bortezomib was included this year for the treatment of patients. So most patients would be treated with thalidomide and dexamethasone or cyclophosphamide, thalidomide and dexamethasone or nalphalan or something like that. We don't have Lena, we don't have Poma, we don't have Dara, we don't have uh, carfilzomib, we don't have anything for that in our public system for myeloma. Wow. Even rituximab in Brazil, we don't have for CLL, we don't have uh, in the public system, of course. We don't have for mental, we only have for diffuse large cell and for follicular without maintenance. So what Nikita said, and thank you Nikita for saying that, is that we navigate through very different choices here. So a clinical trial, uh, and the, the possibility to, to, you know, to offer your patient this kind of drugs. Uh, we, we try to, to enroll as many patients as we can because they are life-saving for these patients. So uh, brentuximab is not available. Uh, immunotherapy, Pembro, Nevo is not approved in the public system for uh, Guilherme, for the 12% of patients with private, are they able to get those? Yeah, now in the private, you, you can get you can most get of these drugs. Yes. Of these. But for 85% plus, they can't. Can I yeah. ask you um, a question? So in the US, and I want to ask this to Nikita because I'm not familiar with this. So in the US, obviously, we have the FDA that approves the drugs. And then once the FDA approves the drugs, um, you know, they are they become covered. What's the system for uh, Brazil? Like, do you have a similar to the FDA, but the Brazilian FDA that approves these drugs? We have our national agency that approves if a drug can be uh, commercialized in Brazil, right? And then we have another one uh, for oral medications that you have a list of drugs that insurance is uh, obliged to reimburse. And then we have a third list for the technologies that will be included in the public system. So it's 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 kind of complicated, you know, uh, but. Uh, if, if, and it's crazy what I'm going to say that, but it's something that happens in Brazil. Uh, if a drug, uh, if, if a cancer drug is IV, it, it is automatically approved and the, the insurance has to pay for that. But if it's a neuro one, uh, it, you have to go to another instance to, to get that approved. For example, lenalidomide was approved uh, and reimbursed in Brazil in 2000. 18 or 19, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. So until 18, 19, even for the private 
patients lenalidomide you have you know to import and we usually import from india because of the generics uh and and it it was not really uh, available for uh, everybody nikita you have a indian fda like just like you have a regulatory thing Tell, take take us through that Yes, we do have an Indian regulatory body. It is the DCGI uh, Sidesco. Uh, so they lay down the clinical trial uh, 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 guidelines for the country, and uh, and the other is is, is drug access or approval of uh, drugs. But if I can talk about a couple of things. Uh, one thing is rituximab is also available on some of these because thanks to uh, the widespread availability of generics, you can actually get them through government-sponsored uh, programs. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, I must mention uh, about uh, ibrutinib. Uh, you know, there was, uh, there was um, the generic was, generic was actually available for some time. And uh, then Johnson & Johnson, I think, uh, won a case, and then they were able to kind of uh, withdraw uh, the approval of generics for ibrutinib. So they fell out of the market. So one thing in India, uh, uh, thanks, to, thanks to generics, and, and you know, when we speak about LMICs, uh, drug availability, and uh, uh, generics, I mean, uh, uh, there is this documentary called uh, Fire in the Blood which is beautiful you know it's it's talked about how um, in africa they had no access to treatment for uh, uh, hiv drugs fluconazole was very very expensive and uh, essentially it was it was uh, cipla uh, the uh, indian company that uh, was was willing to uh, give the drug at less than a dollar uh, so that kind of improved access etc so one is very, very grateful to the availability of generics, but uh, with all the newer drugs, there are various, there are, um, I don't want to go into the complexities, uh, but uh, there are various ways in which these pharmaceutical companies are now, uh, you know, the, the, the patent period is kind of extended and it does not expire soon. Uh, I think it's called evergreening of patents, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so that's leading to a, a significant delay in a lot of these drugs uh, uh, now uh, coming out. It's really interesting. And then, Guilherme, when you compare Brazil to Mozambique, uh, Brazil looks a very, it's, it's different. I mean, like, how do you, I mean... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's completely different. Uh, in Mozambique, sometimes, you know, we have shortage of drugs, and rituximab is, is, is a little bit more complicated to get you know, for our patients. So it's, it's more, it's way more complicated. I would say that, you know, uh, in Brazil, we are kind of, as I said, in the top positions of, you know, the low and middle income countries. Uh, but still, uh, most of the drugs we talk nowadays, they're completely out of our, you know, our, out of our, of our reach. We cannot, we don't have any new drugs for uh, CLL. Most of our patients, in Brazil, actually, with chlorambucil or FC, there's two people being treated with FC in Brazil, in São Paulo. Uh, so it, it really is. It's a lot of. It's, it's a lot different when we see all these new drugs, and you know, it's just not available for us. And in Mozambique, sometimes things get even harder for them. So they have to become very good clinicians, you know, and try to navigate with all these, you know, difficulties. But again, uh, yeah. of course, this impacts the, the patients. How available are clinical trials? I think you both commented on the fact that clinical trials um, are opportunities for your patients with cancer to get access to some of these novel therapies. Um, Nikita, how available are these? Um, uh, I mean, do you have a portfolio of studies for all these tumor types? Um, and then the same question to Guilherme. So, uh, so um, there, is, there is a very nice uh, uh, way in which you can track this. We have the clinical trial registries of India, the CTRI. So there's a website available to look at what clinical trials are available in the country. Uh, but the percentages are very low. Aju Matthew actually wrote... Uh, uh, an uh, editorial on this uh, in uh, 2019. And the percentage uh, access to cancer clinical trials in India is about is, is less than 10%. Again, 
uh, you know, access, uh, a lot of them are uh, pharmaceutical uh, sponsored, about 50% uh, was, uh, uh, they were all pharmaceutical sponsored. There are very, very few investigator initiated uh, studies. But again, access again depends on, uh, on where the patient lives. Is the patient in uh, rural or uh, urban India? And again, in urban India, there are very few states across the country that have more access to uh, clinical trials. So in terms of compared to the number of patients that we see in the country, the clinical trial access is very, very uh, low. And again, you know, you need uh, trial uh, sponsors, you need, uh, uh, you need funding. Investigator-initiated studies cannot, you cannot do a lot of these studies uh, without uh, uh, funding. And uh, for someone who's got a private uh, insurance, the private insurer is obviously not going to uh, uh, look after uh, the patient. So it's um, the access is very, very, very limited compared to the number of patients that uh, one sees in the country. Guillermo, same oh. question? Yeah, in Brazil, we're actually becoming, you know, more, uh, more popular with clinical trials nowadays because... First, uh, our, uh, you know, our regular regulatory agencies were really, really strict. So for a long time, for example, Brazil would not participate in phase one or phase two trials because you have to have all this concern about safety and we only would participate, you know, in phase two trials. Now things are changing a little bit. It, it would take, for example, about one year, one year and a half to get approval for all agencies so you can start a clinical trial. So now it's moving a little bit, it's getting more uh, express. So it, it will take about six to seven months to get a, a clinical trial approved. Uh, and the trials are arriving and I would say maybe 90% of them would be pharma sponsored trials. Uh, it also depends on where you are in Brazil. So in Sao Paulo, for example, you can have two or three uh, centers for one clinical trial, but if you go up for to the north or to northeast, you have one for the whole region. So it's a little bit different. But I think Brazil has been doing a lot of uh, you know good work on clinical trials, and it's good because you know if you if you enroll a lot of patients, quality of data is good. More people will you know will try to get clinical trials here. So we're in a transition. We're getting more clinical trials. Uh, but it, it's a constant, you know, struggle to get them here. I must mention a point about uh, uh, about India. So there is a program that was initiated by the government of India, uh, wherein they are trying to enhance uh, access to clinical trials. Essentially, enhance access to clinical trials, which which will look at uh, 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 researching new clinical uh, new drugs. Uh, so, so there is a very organized uh, a way of doing this for oncology. They have initiated it. It's the BIRAC. So they're also they're simultaneously looking at uh, registering retrospective uh, cancer data for the most common cancers and uh, enhancing uh, systems uh, which can kind of uh, increase the number of uh, or improve the quality of the number of clinical trials done. Uh, so they, they, there has been a, a good amount of funding that has gone into uh, some of the important centers across the country that run some of uh, these uh, studies. So there is a lot of, uh, and again, in, in oncology, things are uh, getting better. We have, uh, uh, we have a program called the National Cancer Grid, the Hematology Cancer Consortium. And these programs are essentially, you know, a lot of us are working in silos. And, uh, you know, you'll, you'll see, even if you go and look at the registration, I don't want to uh, name the studies, but very similar studies are going across, uh, going on in various uh, centers individually. They've not come together. Uh, so there are some nice programs in the in the country that are trying to kind of bring everyone uh, together. And that's one thing I think uh, even, uh, Shari, it's lovely uh, you've, you've brought us together. But I, I think if we have to fight for the cause of LMICs, we're all going to have to come together because we are kind of working in silos. We don't know what's happening in, in the neighboring countries uh, so much. That is among the low middle income countries. And it's, it's really, really important that we all uh, come together. Guilherme, how, uh, how capable are you to do investigator initiated studies in Brazil? Uh, it, it really depends on the center you are. Uh, we are we're 
it's it's a little bit difficult to get approval because, as I said, uh, we're just starting to get more uh, visible on clinical trials. So it usually goes up to all you know to all the instances, and then they they choose somebody that's more you know experienced with that. But we have some uh, we have some uh, success in some areas. Uh, but again, I would say that if we look at all clinical trials, maybe in Brazil, three or five percent will be investigatory initiative. You know, it's it's really the the patterns of care um, and um, obviously differ based on where you are being seen. And that's probably across the entire world. Right. I mean, it's not really. I think we all know that, and uh, I, I don't know if we'll ever live to a time where everybody receives the same care, no matter where they are born. I call this the element of luck. I mean, we're lucky and fortunate if we get sick in a country where you have access to all of these drugs, and, and then otherwise you're out of luck. In the last few minutes, I wanna talk about your psychology. That is a surprise question. Guilherme, I'll start with you. You are very well versed into what's going on uh, with oncology in your area and beyond. And when you see that patient in front of you and you realize that there will be another therapy that you wish you can give that patient that is more effective, you know that, and you just can't because you're tight-handed. How, I mean, how are you able to cope with this? It's not easy. It's, not, it's really not easy. And that's why sometimes I get vocal on Twitter for, you know, uh, comparisons on clinical trials. It's really, it, it's, it's, it's really um, something you have to, to work on and try to, to, to think about other possibilities of, you know, taking care of your patient. So that's why I'm really uh, going after clinical trials and, uh, trying to send my patients to clinical trials that I'm not the PI because it's really hard, you know. It's 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 the idea that you have you could do so much more, but you can't. Uh, and sometimes I, I I try, you know, for example, I go to the director of my public hospital and say, listen, I have to have access to immunotherapy for Hodgkin's patients. These are young patients. These patients that they have 25 years old. And I have to do something to control their disease until they can get to a transplant. So sometimes I, I get lucky. Sometimes I, I'm able to, to show them that, I, that this drug is needed and they can, you know, try to get some funding for that. But it, it, most of the time, it's very difficult. And uh, I've seen people getting really, really depressed and burn out because of these daily choices, right? Uh, we have a much higher mortality for most of this disease. And I, I, I'm not going to say that, but uh, as something, you know, we, the physicians in low and middle income countries, we're really aware of the data. We study a lot. We, you know, we're not, you know, we're not treating this, our patients the way they are treated in the US because we're not aware of the data. There are brilliant doctors here in Brazil, brilliant doctors. Uh, I've been talking with people from Latin America, brilliant doctors in Peru, Colombia, uh, Paraguay, Argentina, but it's it's just that our choices are harder. We we have to we have you know to to decide what we have in hand. So it, it's really hard. I, I'll say that sometimes it's really frustrating. We get angry, but it, you have to try to do the best for our patients. It's always about our patients. We have you know the pain, but of course the pain is way higher for the patients. Nikita, same question. How do you deal with this just as a, as a human being, as an individual with the psychology of not being able to deliver what you know works better because you have limited resources? How are you able to cope? It's, of course, very difficult. And uh, Gilemar spoke about it uh, uh, very nicely. Uh, you know, during COVID especially, it, these discussions became very, very difficult with uh, uh, patients. Um, you know, with, with nationwide lockdowns, they weren't able to, uh, they could not even come for to, to collect their drugs, uh, etc. And one has always discussed with patients and their caregivers, but I think we've, uh, the discussions have gotten a, a lot lengthier since, um, uh, since the, pan, uh, the pandemic. 
but uh, yes, it is very frustrating. Uh, there is a lot of uh, anger um, and um, it's, it's difficult. It leads to a lot of uh, uh, burnout uh, for sure. But you just have to keep pushing yourself. And I, I feel like in our country, um, we need to have stronger patient advocacy groups uh, because they're not completely uh, aware of, uh, uh, of uh, so much more that they could uh, uh, access and ask for. Um, and we need, we need a, a better representation. It's, it's not easy. And, and you're, the thing is, you know, I mean, uh, yes, I, 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 I am privileged and I acknowledge it. Um, where is the incentivization for research? I mean, I think it's it's important that I stop talking about my problems and and we should be talking about uh, the bigger picture. And sometimes I feel that is lacking. Sometimes we just center ourselves around everything and it, you find it hard to uh, kind of uh, navigate uh, some uh, uh, discussions. Uh, but... Um, it's really, um, uh, look, I, I think that anybody who is listening to this um, probably has more appreciation to really what, what you go through and what you are doing. And um, I, I don't know what to say. I just feel that uh, I, I can understand how it feels to have somebody where you really know that you can give a superior treatment and you're just simply unable to. Um, I can imagine how this will really make you feel as physicians. And um, I wanted just to bring to light that there's, you know, the United States of America has 2 million cancer patients, about 2 million cancer patients diagnosed, new cancer patients diagnosed every year. And there's a lot of world outside of the USA that deals with this burden. And um, what applies to us may not always apply to everybody else, other, other countries. Before I let you go, and I'm very thankful, um, I wanna, I always like to end with uh, each guest uh, provide just final comments or anything I may have not covered or not really discussed. So Nikita, we start with you. Any final thoughts, final comments, anything you would like to share with listeners? Thank you. Thank you for uh, uh, organizing this uh, discussion and highlighting our problems. Uh, we need we need partners in uh, high income countries to uh, to help us uh, uh, improve access to uh, 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 cancer diagnosis and uh, treatment. Um, uh, we're thankful to those who who understand the inclusiveness. Uh, but uh, you know my heart breaks for this uh, the the discussion uh, with Gilmore on uh, Brazil and how some of these generics. Uh, are not available and they they're really not they're not that expensive at all why aren't governments doing more i have nothing else to say except that um, um yeah i'm i'm grateful for uh, you bringing us together and i i hope to see us working together towards the cause of low middle income countries as well because like i said um access to everything is diminishing. Nothing is improving. It's, it's actually getting worse across um, uh, across the board, across all the LMICs. So we're going to have to do a lot more to improve things. Well, you're going above and beyond and you're doing everything that you can. So thank you for everything you're doing. Kalermi, any final thoughts, anything you would like to share with listeners I may have not asked you about? Well, just want to thank you for... and. Thank you, Nikita, for this amazing time we had together, bringing to light our reality. Uh, our reality is a little bit different. Our choices are a little bit more difficult sometimes, but we are all here for the same reason. That's, you know, to improve the life of our patients. So uh, anything that we can do to do that, uh, we, have, we have to do. So even if it's a clinical trial, if it's a suboptimal clinical trial, what we're doing here is trying to, you know, to, to help our patients uh, the way we can. Uh, and of course, we're doing a lot of other things. We're working with a lot of uh, players, other countries. But at the end, uh, we are, you know, in, in a worse position. 
and sometimes our choices are a little bit more complicated. But thank you for bringing light to that. And I think we have to bring light to other other countries. As I said, we we have to to talk about what's going on in Africa, in in countries that are in in war, in uh, unstable countries, because as you said, it's not fair that you know. Uh, your chance in life, your chance in, in curing a cancer depends mostly on where you were born or, or where you are at the right time. Well, uh, Drs. Nikita Mera and Guilherme Pirini, uh, thank you so much for coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. Really appreciate your time and uh, look forward to bringing you again some other time where hopefully we have made progress across the world. Thank you. Okay, folks, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate your support. Thank you for joining me on Healthcare Unfiltered. Thank you to my amazing guests, Nikita Mera and Guillermo Perini for highlighting the issues of oncology care in uh, low-middle-income countries. Uh, please subscribe, rate, review the podcast. Please check it out on YouTube, on my website, and all podcast outlets. And before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a segment of something that Theodore Roosevelt once said. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Until next time, take care.